Well, I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter number 16. Matthew chapter number 16. And this morning, we'll be looking together at verses 24 through 26. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Our subject this morning is following a rejected Christ. Following a rejected Christ. Uh, It is one thing to follow... uh, one who is known and is very known for his notoriety, he's known for his popularity, a person who is known for what they can bring you, what they can give you. Uh, but Jesus taught his disciples that uh, their following of him would be the equivalent of following he who was rejected. Uh, in that scripture reading in the book of Mark, we saw that uh, even. Uh, Herod would not reject or would not uh, go back on uh, what he had said, the oath that he had made. He he would not reject the request uh, that was being given. And he carried out, gave the orders to execute uh, John the Baptist, who was the prophesied forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see that rejection uh, brings a person to make a choice. Uh, Would a true follower of Christ follow a person who is being rejected? You see, the Lord in these verses in 24 through 26 immediately connects to His disciples the reality of His rejection. You'll notice in verse 24, He said, Then said Jesus unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The Lord connects the following of him with something that is going to be difficult. Not only will it be filled with difficulties, it will contain within it the reality of a denial of self. The most difficult person to deny is yourself. We have no problem denying, rejecting other people for various reasons, but to deny yourself is a great cost. To say, I will not receive or I will not take, I will give up, to deny certainly is difficult. Christ is not telling them that they're going to have to give up a few things, that they're going to have to be inconvenienced, that they're going to have to be uncomfortable. He's telling them that in order to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and set aside everything. In other words, it's going to cost you all that you have. Not just possessions, but it will cost you everything. He's preparing them by telling them you must be ready to suffer The reproach, the reproach that the world has towards me and for any who claim me. That's the meaning of a man must take up his cross. Sadly, that phrase, take up my cross, or take up, that's just the cross that God gave me, is used for ordinary daily inconveniences. Some would say, my wayward child is my cross. That's not what Jesus meant at all. Or my health situation is my, I guess this is the cross 
that God has given me. That's not the true context. The cross reference here is that they must be willing to deny themselves to the point that they are going to have to suffer the same reproaches and persecutions and maybe even ultimately death that Jesus Christ would upon a cross. So when Jesus says you must take up his cross, he doesn't say about taking up your cross, it's taking up my cross. And we'll see that in just a little bit. So both are presented here. The Lord gives a choice to those who will be his followers. He says, whoever wants to follow me, you're going to have to meet these conditions. And only when you do this, only when you follow, can you be a true follower of Christ. Everybody wants to be a follower until it leads to rejection. Everyone wants to be a follower until it leads to maybe being without. You see, everyone wants to follow, quote unquote, the one who wins. It's going to appear to the world that to be a follower of Christ is to actually lose everything that the world holds so dear. But in essence, what Jesus is teaching here is that it is he who gives up this life who truly wins everything. You must deny yourself. No one's forced to do it. No one's forced to be a follower of Christ. No one's forcing you today to be a disciple of the Lord. No one's making you be here today. But this is the least. This is the least of all things that a follower of Christ does. To sit in a warm, comfortable building with really no threat of anything bad happening to us. This is not burdensome. This isn't difficult. You don't know the morning I had. This is nothing. This is absolutely positively nothing. It costs you nothing. Maybe a couple pennies of gas money. But it didn't cost you anything deeply. But yet Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to follow me and you're going to be rejected just like I am. Now, nobody likes rejection. <clears throat> Children don't like rejection. Adults don't either. We're always seeking approval. You don't outgrow that, by the way. You think, oh, I can't wait to get out of school and I won't have to be, deal with rejection. You deal with rejection all your life. But again, the rejection Jesus is talking about is not just rejection that's simple, hey, I don't like you. You're going to have to be rejected to the point where people are going to want to kill you. People are going to want to take your life from you. Now, are you willing, as you count the cost, are you willing to follow me as a rejected Savior? That's what's at the heart of this. He gives them these contrasting and comparisons. Whoever wants to live for this life and wants to keep this life, ultimately he won't keep it. Certainly he'll lose it. So if your choice is to live for this world and to try to hold on to it, ultimately here's the end. You lose it. If, on the other hand, you want to surrender your life, deny yourself, and give it all over to Christ you will find that that's where the only true life is found. Now, this is not old adages. This is not things that are no longer in effect. This is still the cost. People say, you know, the cost of following Jesus is different now. It's not any different than it was in his day. Now, I realize the context, that it was more real to them, and it would be more certain to them that their rejection was going to lead to their own death. 
But the reality is still there. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, <clears throat> you have to learn to deny yourself. There's no other way about it. You either have to choose to live for this life and try to acquire as much as you can for this life, ultimately knowing you're going to lose it, or you have to give up this life and follow Christ and ultimately know that you found true life. That's what's at the heart here. What the Lord says is always true. There's no way around this. You want to save this life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life here for Christ, ultimately what you find is real life. So we have a consideration today. We are to consider what the Lord says. Now he's trying to make the choice easy. When you look at this passage, you think, boy, this is a difficult choice. It's really not, not for the true follower of God. It's, it's actually very simple. It's not difficult. It's not really there to ponder and think about, boy, I'm, I'm choosing between two good things. The most difficult choices in life are when you're presented with two choices that both have good characteristics to them, isn't it? Uh, families, we try to make decisions for our families, our kids, and we're looking at two choices and we say both have benefits. But do you see what Jesus is saying? One of these you want no part of. The other one, this is where true life is fine. The choice is not difficult. The difficulty is, is you have to count the cost, what it's going to cost you. Once you start dealing with people's cost, now you start getting very personal. What will this cost me? Well, he's not talking about money. He's not talking about a little bit of notoriety. He said it's going to cost you everything to be a true follower of Christ. He wants them and us to think about it. Imagine, as he says, Imagine if it were possible, and it were, I guess it could be possible in a rare sort of way, if you were to gain the whole world, if you could get it all, how long would you enjoy it all? By average, at best, 100 years, if you're fortunate to live that long. So you'd have it all for 100 years. It has a limit on it. There's no beyond that. None of you are escaping the grave. No matter what fountain of youth you find, you're not escaping the grave. So if you get 100 years, you have it all. 100 years, 50 years, maybe you're 50 when you find it. You gain all the world. You've got 50 years to enjoy it. But maybe on that day of your 100th birthday, you stop breathing. You not only lost all that you gained from this world, but if you did that to the neglect of your soul, you also lost your soul. Now you have nothing. Even though you had it all for 50 years. Now I'm not trying to be cute when I say this. Some of you haven't even lived 50 years. So for you, this seems like, well, 100 years is a long time. Ask somebody who's older than 50 if 100 years is a long time. I'm so glad when I look out on this congregation, I see very young and I see older because we see the very beauty of what life is. But every one of us, especially that are going towards the older side, will say, I will tell you, 100 years is absolutely nothing. It goes by like a vapor. The Bible tells us life is like a vapor. And those of us that have lived long enough, we can attest to that. It goes faster and it seemingly speeds up. I don't know how that happens, 
but it sure feels like it speeds up. So we enjoy it for 100 years, 50 years, whatever it is, but we forfeit the soul. The Bible describes eternal torment, describes flames. It describes a place called hell. It's fallen out of favor. It's fallen out of popularity in churches because it's hindered church growth. The Bible teaches that there is a very real hell that very real souls go to, those who have neglected and rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. The soul of a human being is the most precious possession that you have. There is nothing more precious you own. It's more precious than your home, your clothing. It's more precious than even your family. That's a difficult statement to say, but we have got to get this in our mind. Your soul is the most precious possession that you have. If you lose your soul forever, that's exactly how long you lose it. You lose it forever. You don't recover it after 50 years. You don't get another opportunity to say, okay, this was all real, this is all true. I want to regain now my soul. There is no opportunity for that. There's no means of an exchange. There's no bartering process. There's nothing that says, okay, I want to do an exchange now. That's why the question is, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's absolutely nothing you can barter with. Once you lose that soul, you've lost it. Now don't be confused. To lose the soul doesn't mean that you lose the acknowledgement and the understanding of you. You are still very much aware for all of eternity of your separation from God. You do not cease to exist. Annihilation is a false heretical doctrine. You do not just simply cease to be as an animal. An animal does not have a soul. Apparently, this is hard sometimes for our kids to understand. Animals don't go to heaven. They don't have a soul. They cease to exist. Mankind has a soul, which means that soul must live somewhere forever. It doesn't just cease to exist. Even when the body dies, the soul is still very much alive. So he's not talking about something that actually comes to an end. It continues. People are concerned about what they have in this life, what they gain in this life, and are less concerned about their soul when it should be the other way around. You should be more concerned about your soul today than anything this world brings. Like the thing on your heart today and the thing on your mind this week, no matter what you're facing, your most pressing concern should always be the condition of your soul. And if your answer is, well, I've already dealt with my condition of my soul 10 years ago, you're missing the point. You should continually be thinking and pondering and thinking about your soul, that all is well. You say, well, won't that, won't that mar my assurance? Not if you believe God's Word, because God's Word tells you what it is to be in Christ. But that doesn't mean you stop thinking about it. We can be in the house of God and we could be thinking about everything and anything but our soul today. 
You might be sitting here today and you're thinking about your bank account. You're thinking about your job. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about the conflict you had over the holidays. You're thinking about everything, but you're not thinking about your soul today. That's what you should be considering today. You say, shouldn't you save this for an evangelistic campaign of some sort? No. Not only should a believer be reminded, ask that question, answer that question. Am I willing to continue to follow a rejected Christ if it means that I am going to be rejected myself? People should be more concerned, and that's what Jesus is bringing them to this realization of. Now, he's not just saying this because he thought it was a good lesson. In context, remember that the disciples had begun to, if you, if you will, let me use the word assimilate, or they had begun to take on the thought of the day, this notion, this idea, this concept of a temporal kingdom. They had began thinking about Jesus as setting up an earthly throne. and Because we see that later when they start asking the questions about who can sit where. Which, which, which one of us can sit on your right hand? They were not thinking eternally. They were thinking temporally. Their mind had begun to drift away from spiritual things. And remember, we looked last week how Jesus from that time forth began to teach them more darkly. He began to teach them more about what was coming. The cross was coming. Now, if we were to read into it and look way back, the beheading of John the Baptist was really kind of a foreshadowing of what was going to start taking place. Why did they behead John the Baptist? Because he preached the truth. So it's unlawful for you to commit this sin. Even Herod, he acknowledged it, but then when it, it came down to making a choice between accepting John the Baptist and his teaching or Herodias, he said, I'm, going to re I'm not going to reject her. I'm going to reject him. You see, that's your choice. You're either going to reject Christ or you're going to reject the world. You can't have 50-50. You can't have, I want 50% of Jesus in my life and I want the other 50 to enjoy and make this world my goal. Jesus is saying exactly the opposite of that. They were in expectations that if Jesus' earthly kingdom was set up, remember, these disciples were not super saints. The same temptations that would have taken them are the same temptations to take us. They start thinking about worldly riches. They start thinking about honor. They start thinking about pleasure. And he takes this opportunity now to start preaching the doctrine of the cross. And he starts talking more and more clearly about the cost. Now, for what he has said to them to this point, these verses, 24, 25, and 26, are extremely strong words to the disciples at this time. Because he's now giving them a list of what this is going to cost. He lets them know, you've got to prepare for persecution. You've got to prepare for rejection, for sufferings. Ultimately, Jesus being God knew that your following of me Remember, he knew what they didn't know yet. Your following me is going to lead to your death. They didn't know that at the time, but that's what he's preparing them for. If you're going to be one of my disciples, you have to expect to endure and even give up your life if that's what it costs. 
Notice he's very, he is very specific. He says, if any man will come after me. That is, to be a disciple, to be a follower of him. It was very usual in a master and a student relationship for the master to go before them and the student to follow after. So when Jesus is speaking in very understandable terms, oh, I know what that means, follow after him. We take these statements for granted because we just, oh, follow after him. But, but it was very apparent to them, here's what he's saying. He's not just talking about following him down the street. He's, he's telling us that whatever happens to him, we should expect to happen to us. The teacher and the student. Now, he says, if any man... That means he's not making a distinction of who this would refer to. In other words, if you're a rich man, if you're a poor man, if you're an educated person, if you're an uneducated person, if you're young, if you're old, if you're male or you're female, if any person is going to be a follower of me, here's what it's going to cost. And I don't think it's by coincidence that Jesus starts with the most difficult part of this let him deny himself. Just like how difficult it is for us to deal with pride in our life, as we learned this morning, probably second in that line is denying yourself. We, by nature, are so unbelievably selfish, we don't even understand the depth of how selfish we are. We really live this life, we make decisions based upon what's best for us Let him deny himself. Deny himself of what? Of the, the worldliness, ungodliness, worldly lusts. It might mean you have to give up sinful companions you once had. You have to renounce your own works of your own righteousness. Remember, the disciples are still learning all of this. Deny yourself and the, ple the pleasures and the profits of this world. Now, he doesn't say that you can't have anything, but when you compare them to Christ, they should not be your primary aim. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you have to be poor to be a follower of Christ. But there is a natural following that as you follow him, your mind gets turned away from the things of this world and realizes those things are no longer important. Now, it would be a foolish statement for me to say to you today, you have no need of money. We all have need of money. It's what we purchase things with. And we could say the Lord will provide. Yes, he will. It's not the money that's the wickedness. It's the aim, the goal that says, this is what I'm following after. He says, no, deny yourself that those are not the most important things. But he also had something deeper in mind, as if those aren't deep enough. You also need to deny yourself of the expectations that my primary goal is an earthly kingdom. That's not my primary goal. Or that this is somehow based around the people looking at me with this worldly thing and look at me and say, this is what I'm after first and foremost. But rather, I want you to think about what's going to come next. Reproach, persecution. And for them, ultimately death. For what reason? 
for the sake of following a rejected Savior. The reason those men were later martyred was because they were following a rejected Savior. They weren't executed because they were bad businessmen. They weren't executed because they were thieves. They weren't executed because they were pleasure seekers. They were executed because they were following a rejected Savior. A Savior who was teaching about Himself. A teacher who said, I am God. I and my Father are one. That the world would look at and say, He's a blasphemer. That's who you'll be following. One that the world will hate. So he says, take up his cross. Again, not the cross of family problems. Not the cross of financial difficulty. It's, 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 it's about the same thing when we, we've heard that just horrible teaching about facing the giants in your life and comparing yourself to David and the giant. That's not what that's about. Well, that's not what taking up your cross is about either. There's nobody in this room who has faced the cross. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about the agony and the pain that being hung on a cross would cause you. I'm talking about the reproach of it. This, this is not just the pain. This is the sinless Savior facing a reproach for something he was not guilty of. See, that's why, sadly, the cross is depicted so wrongly. Yes, there was pain. Yes, there was anguish. Yes, there was sorrow. But the reproach, the rejection by all who looked at him and wagged their tongues at him, walked by the cross and just looked at him and said, he claimed to be God. Well, let him bring himself down if he's, so, if he's such God. And he didn't. He bore the reproach. To take up the cross is not just to take it by wearing it around your neck. To by putting it on a wall behind us, which I know this is coming as a shock to many of you, I struggle with that cross on the wall. Because I don't think we fully appreciate and understand what that means. It doesn't just simply mean that, hey, this is a place of Christians. It ought to be a place where these are people that are truly following Christ no matter what. Again, if we have a healthy understanding of what the cross means, it's fine. But how many people in this day and age go to a church where there's a cross who don't have any clue what that means? How many people wear a cross around their neck who have no idea what a cross means? They wear it as a fashion statement. And as I've said many times, you're wearing an execution instrument around your neck. Now, I'm not telling you whether you should or you shouldn't. I'm not getting down to that level. If you understand what it means, fine. But to bring to the point where you say, I understand the cost. I understand what it costs my Savior to be hung upon that cross that's more than the pain and agony, but is actually the reproach the rejection. We are to take up this cross and patiently bear every affliction, every evil, no matter how shameful and painful that might be. 
whatever's appointed for Christ, we're supposed to be willing, his disciples were supposed to be willing to suffer that as well. Every Christian, we understand, is going to face different types of persecution for it. That's what he means by take up his cross, take up the Lord's cross. Yeah, we're going to suffer different levels of persecution. As I've told you, there are people around the world today that are suffering unmentionable persecution that you and I have not even scratched the surface with. I'm willing to guess there's not a single one of you, maybe, there, maybe I'm wrong, who's actually truly been threatened with your life if you don't renounce Christ. Do not count the slamming door in your face. Oh, there's, that's, that's, really, that's real rejection. Oh, it's rejection. But you haven't suffered on the cross. You haven't truly been persecuted yet. And they hadn't yet either. They hadn't fully seen what this was going to require of them. But they are to resign themselves to following a rejected Savior, to imitate Him. Notice He says to follow Me. To follow Him in humility, to follow Him in patience, in self-denial. Even if it means through sufferings and death. There is a bit of an illusion here. And what He's speaking about foreshadowing, about bearing His cross. We know Simon in Matthew 27, 32 is called from the crowd and he in a sense carries Christ's cross for him when he can no longer do it. But Jesus here is telling his disciples that in order for him to do and do the Father's will, he's going to sacrifice himself and everyone who follows him must be willing to do the same. Don't lose the sense of this. If any man will come after me, come after me, has a, an intention there of being very close to. Sticking very close to that person you're following. It makes Peter's rejection in the face of the maid when she ID'd him and said, I know who you are. And he said, I know not this man. And the Bible actually describes that he sees the Lord afar off. See, he was just far enough away that he tried to deny his connection. Every man must examine himself. Are we willing to deny ourselves? Are we willing to cheerfully endure what the Lord Himself went through? He tells them of His cross, and now He tells them that they're going to have to follow a similar path. Now again, they could choose whether or not they would or they wouldn't. Each day, Jesus begins to tell them more and more about what's getting ready to happen. Again, please don't look at this like the theologians we are and think, boy, they knew all this. You know more than what these disciples knew at this point. You know more right now than they did. So it's easy for us to look back and say, well, I, I would have counted, I would have understood. They don't fully get it yet. They have no idea. Even when he mentions the cross, they don't fully understand what he means by cross. Because even the Old Testament prophecy didn't say that the Messiah would be crucified on a cross. The cross was a Roman instrument. There's a lot to that we could talk about for a long time. So they were to bear. Now, we could say today, well, yeah, that was for the disciples. 
the modern church, the contemporary church says, yeah, we, we know what the Bible says, but uh, we have to alter it. We have to alter it for the society in which we live. And they make all sorts of excuses. This is a different part of the world. These are different times. Uh, we, we don't have to accept these things. There's a great cost to following Christ. And it, it, is, a, it is a shame that we would dare to say, well, we don't have to accept that. Tell that to your Christian brethren who did die the martyr's death for the faith that you're taking so lightly. Someone that when they were called to renounce their faith said, I can think nothing of rejecting my Savior. I can think nothing of saying, no, I don't know this man. We trample the graves of those who once stood and say, I will give up my very life and my possessions in this world for He who saved me. You see, we want to follow a rejected Savior as long as it doesn't cost us anything. That's what the contemporary church is about. Just come to Jesus as you are, stay as you are, leave filled and happy. If, you're, if you don't hear something that encourages and refreshes your soul every message, listen, there are difficult passages in Scripture that have not, they don't just go away. Of course, everybody wants the Jesus that's going to make your life all good. But you'd be ignoring the things that Jesus is talking about here. Will we, would we be willing to follow or do we say, I want to follow as long as I don't have to deny myself of the joys of this world? As we talked about wisdom this morning, our own wisdom leads us to think very lightly of the blood of Christ. We think of the blood of Christ, we compare it to what we might give up in this world, and sadly, we sometimes choose the possessions of this world because we treat them more precious than His blood. And then he says in verse 25, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Again, whoever desires to preserve himself from these troubles, from these reproaches, these persecutions, and maybe even death, he finds a way to try to avoid it, realizing the only way he can avoid that is to forsake Christ. He has to deny the gospel, and ultimately he has to renounce his profession of it. In other words, the only way for you to save this life is you have to deny Christ to do it. In other words, if you say, my most important goal is this life, then you have to deny Christ to attain it. There's no, there's no two ways about this. You'll gain favor with men. Some of the most admired people in the world, sadly, are the wealthiest people in the world. If you're not careful, you'll teach your children to hold up and, in a sense, worship unsaved, unbelieving people. Be careful who you hold up as here's the standard. Be careful of who you let your kids see is the standard, who the world says, now here's real success. Or uses something like this person here who has billions of dollars is a great philanthropist. They are very charitable, but their soul is lost. At what point does the soul become, become the most important thing? I'm not saying we shouldn't feed the hungry. 
I'm not saying we should not do things for the poor and the needy. But to gain favor with man and to make that your goal, to obtain the worldly profits and the honor and the pleasure of this life, you will have to deny Christ to accomplish that. Preacher, I don't like that message. None of our humanity does. He says, whoever saves it will lose it. He'll expose himself to what? How does he lose it? He exposes himself to the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Sin must be punished. How is sin punished? It's an everlasting punishment. It's the destruction of the soul and the body in hell. It's being destroyed, but the soul never dies. It's a, it's a mystery of God. Some people have led themselves to believe, well, okay, I don't really want to go to hell. But the Bible, but but I've heard not the Bible, but I've heard that okay, it's fire, so that means painful for a little bit, but then it'll all be over. That's not how the Bible describes hell. It describes it as a place that burns and the soul doesn't die. That means you're not coming to a place where you become unaware. Every soul in hell is fully aware of what's going on. He says, that's the very thing in which you're neglecting. You're exposing yourself to God's wrath and the second death. The second death yet not dying. See why man chooses annihilation? Because it sounds more palatable. Pain for a few moments, but at least it'll all be over. That's not what the Bible says. It says there is this very real Consideration we have to make. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, that is willing to forego, deny himself of all the pleasures and the comforts of this life, which may subject him to distress, it may subject him to poverty, and willing to lay down this earthly life for the sake of Christ and the gospel rather than denying Christ. He says that one Will, will, whosoever will lose his life for my sake, he says, shall find it. He'll enjoy eternal life. Free from what this life brings us. Affliction, sorrow, trials. This is really the law of what it means to sacrifice self. It's sacrifice, though, that's based on the sacrifice of Christ. We sang one of those hymns, we are not our own. Apostle Paul says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're bought with the precious blood of Christ. To try to keep this life for ourselves would be acting contrary to the very purpose in which Jesus Christ has saved you. It's the last thing you should think about, be thinking about doing is how do I save my life here? Now, he tells them, this is not just something I'm giving you for you to ponder, to consider. Verse 6 is connected. For what is a man profited? The profit is not just a word that's it's there kind of out of place. It's connected to everything to follow after. In other words, what is the profit in doing this? He's teaching them doctrine here. He's told them you can only save your real self, your soul, by the loss of this present life. 
but they have to settle it in their own minds that you have to first and foremost give up the desire to save this life first. Jesus is being as honest as he can possibly be. He cannot lie, so he speaks complete truth. So what is a man profited? The person who thinks that they are seeking their own profit, they are seeking their own pleasures and profits in this world will find themselves most sadly in error. The gravest error you can commit, the gravest error you can commit is to gain the whole world and lose your soul. There's been great errors throughout human history. There's been errors that have led to the loss of life. There have been events in our world that we've watched over years where investigations reveal that the reason this accident happened or the reason this explosion happened or the reason people died was because of human error. And as sad as it is that human error cost the earthly life of people, what's even sadder is the people that were the result of that human error, there were many, many, many who lost their soul. You see, it is a sad thing to earthly lose your life, but it's a worse thing to lose your soul. Now, he's not just talking about, hey, okay, so if I don't gain the whole world, I have nothing to worry about. It's the mindset he has in mind here. If he shall gain, he's giving a hypothetical here. If you would gain the whole world, would it be worth trading your soul for? The obvious answer for the believer is what? Absolutely not. You couldn't give me all the, all the money and all the gold and all the silver and diamonds and precious jewels. You could not. I would not exchange that for my soul. But do you realize there have been people who have done it? A rich young ruler, for everything we can see, did it. He treated the present possessions of this world more important than his eternal soul. To gain the whole world, Jesus has in mind here everything in this world that has value. Not just money, but power. See, to gain the whole world means you also have power over it all. There's this idea that when you say gain the whole world, because gain is often associated with profit and loss, that it just means finances. No, to gain the whole world means to have total control over everything this world has. If you were the governor or the president of the entire world, everything was at your disposal. Servants answered to you. Everything that you said, they had to do. You are the only person. You have the whole world. And he says, and lose your own soul. To be delivered, to lose the soul, is to have the soul delivered to everlasting misery. To be eternally removed from God's presence. To continually feel the worm that never dies. To continually hear the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Honestly, folks, we, th we think in such human terms that we think of fire. We have firefighters here today. These men see things. They see fires. They see death. They will probably tell you, could tell you about fires that were particularly hot 
I can't use the terms they do. I'm not trained to do that, but they are. And they will tell you there are flames that did this. And they will tell you how in buildings, flames act a certain way. Certain things and certain, if, if you do this or you don't do this, you're, you're setting yourself up for a bigger fire. We think about the terms of flames. But do you know what the, the most frightening thing about these flames are? that God's talking about in his word, it's not fire in human terms. It's fire that is God's divine wrath. That's the part we cannot humanly get a hold of. That's why every one of us as parents and grandparents, we're praying for our children's souls. And we don't want anything more for them than for their souls to be saved. Jesus is so clearly telling them, you would be receiving the worst deal of all time to choose the world and lose your soul. That's exactly what this comes down to. What shall that man give in exchange? Exchange also has the idea of a redemption in it. Had the whole world to give and you could give it. Here's what he means. It would not be a sufficient ransom for your soul. You see, the redemption of the soul requires a payment that you can't make. It requires a payment that none of us can make. It's a payment that mankind for thousands of years has been trying to make. God will make you a deal. If you'll save my soul, I'll give you this. If you'll spare me from hell, I'll give you this. None of those is a sufficient payment. The only payment acceptable is the blood of Jesus Christ. That payment's been made. Christ made that payment. No amount of gold, no amount of silver, no amount of power, no corruptible thing could you barter or exchange. Nothing short of the blood and the life of Jesus Christ is a proper exchange. With His blood, He paid the ransom. But you see, once you step into eternity, there is no redemption to be had. The heretical, awful, Terrible Catholic doctrine of purgatory. There's, there, I don't know if there is a more satanic teaching than that. Hey, if you end up in this awful place, don't worry. There'll be some real saints who'll pray you out of that place. There's no purgatory, there's no holding cell. There's no place where your tallies are added up and say, does your good outweigh your bad? And if your good outweighs your bad, then you'll be escorted into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, when that body stops breathing, when that body starts having life in it, it steps out into eternity. And it's not held in limbo. It's one of two places. It's either in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ or it's separated from Him. The loss of the soul cannot be recovered. Once that soul is lost, 
and condemned, it can never be retrieved. Everything in this life is worthless when compared to the loss of a soul or the gaining of eternal life. What is a man profited? He isn't. That's the answer. He isn't. He has no profit. The Lord Jesus Christ places the importance of the soul in the light of what's getting ready to take place. We'll see when we get into chapter 7 in a couple of weeks, because I've saved the last two verses of this as an introduction into that. But we start to see that the Lord Jesus begins to speak of, again, what's getting ready to happen, but then also of his return one day. He's going to speak of his coming again. He's going to speak of those that will accompany him, the angels and the glory of the Father. After these serious words, the, what we know as the transfiguration is a bit of an encouragement to these disciples who see it and witness it. We'll see that it is Peter, it's James, and it's John, and they see some interesting things. They see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom with their own eyes. But the Lord's referring to something that as we get into that, we see the importance of it. But folks, we need to understand today that no matter how great the opposition comes and no matter how much rejection we receive in this world, to be a follower of Christ is to follow a rejected Savior. Again, I would never take for granted the condition of your soul today. I would be doing you a great disservice if I stood up here on Sundays, each Lord's Day, each Wednesday night, and I did not confront you with the condition of your soul. I would fail in a calling of a preacher of the gospel to not point you to the gospel and to your soul each and every time so that you leave here today being confronted yet again with the reality of your own salvation, the reality of your own conversion. But on top of that, you should and I should leave here with a greater burden for people. You should leave here with a greater burden for those who do not yet know Christ. If we take this out as just all this theological knowledge we have, we've missed the point. I, re I, I re resolve myself to the fact a long time ago, there are things I will never understand fully. But that I am proclaimed, I am called to preach this gospel, preach this word, because it's his word. And it's the God himself that converts the soul. But we have an obligation to preach the gospel and to pray for people. Pray that they would be saved. And knowing, hey, getting saved doesn't mean you're going to have an easier life. No, the reality is, is you are going to have to pay a great cost to follow a rejected Savior. That's what he was teaching his disciples. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we yet again have been confronted with very difficult words. But they're words for those of us that are in Christ of a Savior. Truthful words. Words, although hard to hear, even harder to fully comprehend. Words that we cannot fully discern unless the Holy Spirit gives us that ability to see and to hear and understand them. Father, it is impossible for me to know the condition of every soul here today.
I can hear a profession. I can see outward actions. But I cannot see the true heart of any man, woman, boy, or girl. And in like manner, they can look at me. They cannot see my soul. They can hear my words. They can see my actions. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would confront us as he already has. Convict us where it needs to be convicted. And Lord God Almighty, above all other things, that if there's a soul here today that stands in need of conversion, that if it is according to your appointed hour and your appointed purpose and pleasure in them, that today would be that glorious day of salvation. Father, help us to trust and believe the promises of your word. Not to believe the philosophies of the day that are telling us there is no hell, there is no, there is no second death. Live, eat, drink, and be merry for this life because this is all there is, Lord. We know your word says that is not the case. And Father, may our children be taught to see this great truth. May they not set their eyes upon what this world can give them, but may they from a very, very young age set their hope in God even when they can't fully comprehend everything they're hearing and seeing, but they see an example of moms and dads and grandparents that are willing to follow, even if it costs them everything, to follow a rejected Savior. Lord, may this be the desire in the heart of every believer here today. May we have a deeper burden for people and not write people off but pray that their soul would be converted. Pray that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. And Lord, we know that for every soul that is saved, we take no credit for. We only give all glory and praise to God alone. Salvation is of the Lord. Father, save the children that are here at the right hour. And Father, we pray that as they hear the word over and over and over again, that their hearts become receptive their eyes their eyes begin to see and they begin to hear and they trust in the savior that we love so much because he loved us first father thank you for saving wretched sinners like us and promising us an eternity where we will see our savior face to face and be as he is be without sin that so easily besets us in this life. Father, thank you, and we praise you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.